Uh, Nika? Okay, but I can't hear her. There you go. Nika? You gotta bring this up. Oh. Nika? I hear. I hear you. Okay. Flat black plastic. It's special. Okay, but I can't hear her. Yeah, you're but, hearing her through there. Okay. Oh, can I turn Emma? the Yeah, hi. Hi, okay, I can hear you. You hear her through those. Okay, I can't hear you that well. We gotta turn, we're turning up the headset. Okay. Yeah. Say something, Nika. Hello, good morning. Testing. One, two, yeah, she, three. I can hey, hear her out there. Okay. Can you not hear her through there? I can hear you fine. Okay, good. Then you're good. Testing. Okay. Hi, hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together to have open cross-race conversations on race and bring race to the people. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid of saying the wrong thing, or afraid of not being heard or being trivialized, then this podcast is for you. If you like what you hear today, then go to www.raceconvo, convo-like conversation, raceconvo.com, and download more episodes. If you really like what you hear, then share your, these episodes with colleagues, friends, and everyone else you know. And if you really, really, really like what you hear, and you really want us to continue because we run our show by donations, then go to www.raceconvo.com and leave a small donation or a large one, or you can purchase one of my books on diversity and inclusion. I'm so excited about my next guest. Her career spans over 20 years as a diversity and inclusion consultant and speaker and community advocate. She's the senior advisor to the Greenville Chamber of Commerce Diversity and Inclusion Initiatives and the recipient of the 2014 Excellence in Diversity Award from the Greenville Society of Human Resource Management in South Carolina. She's also was the South Carolina Career Woman of the Year and was recognized by the, the, by the Network Journal magazine as being a member of the top 40 under 40, le under 40 leaders and diversity. I was honored to work with her last year when she brought me to speak at the Greenville, South Carolina Chamber Diversity and Inclusion Conference. I'm so happy and excited to have Dr. Nika White as my guest today. Hi, Nika, how are you? Hi, Sema, I'm doing well, and I hope you are. Oh yes, it's the sun's the sun's out here today. What's it like in South Carolina? You've had some really bad weather. We have had some bad weather, but today the sun is beaming, and so we're super excited to see the sun out. Oh great! Well, I I'm I'm so glad that we could that you could be on my show. And to get started, is there anything else that you would like to say about yourself in terms of who you are? And second, I'm going to ask you to just, because people can't see you, to just say something about your demographics. Like, I'm a white Jewish woman who is a baby boomer. I'm from the Bronx, but I live in Berkeley, but I'm still from the Bronx. Okay. Fantastic. So first and foremost, Emma, thanks so much for having me. I have, too, been looking forward to connecting today. So for those who um, have not had the opportunity to hear me before, um, my name is Dr. Nika White. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I consider myself an inequity disruptor. Um, I am a best-selling author. Um, I am the owner of Nika White Consultant, which is a management consulting firm that intersects the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership in business. And I am just so pleased to be here. 
And you're now you're are you you're an African American woman? Are yes. you a millennial Xer? What would you consider your your generation? I am an African American, and um, I'm definitely not a millennial. Although I feel like I'm a millennial at heart, I would say I'm an Xer. Okay, great. So a question I have for you is why? Why is 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 it important to talk about race? And why is it important to talk about it? That's a great question. And I certainly believe that it is important to talk about race um, because it's one of the dimensions of diversity that certainly has a lot to do with the way in which we show up in the world, to the way in which we perceive the world. And that's an important um, dimension that I think we all should be very comfortable talking about. Um, because it also has been one of those factors that has historically divided us. And I think that it doesn't have to be so as long as we can learn to become much more comfortable in having the conversation about race. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing to help move society forward in a way where they can feel more comfortable and, and authentic in, in having the conversation about race. Now, you and I are both in the diversity and inclusion field. We help create inclusive workplaces. So we, always, so we have to have these conversations. So I'm assuming that you often have conversations about race. Am I right? No, absolutely. One of the things that I tell people, Sema, is that we live in a society not where the, per- the point is to not notice difference, but to notice difference. And race is one of those um, dimensions that certainly is a part of, of human difference. And so we certainly have to be willing to have a conversation. Now, and I'm going to assume that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have conversations about race with people who are from different cultures and backgrounds than you. Absolutely. So why do you think so many people have a hard time talking about it? <laughs> I think there there are multiple reasons, Um, one of which is because I think that we live in a society where people are so driven towards political correctness instead of cultural competence. And I think that that level of political correctness prevents us from being transparent, from following our curiosity and asking questions that allows us to learn about other cultures. And so I think that we are just afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. Um, But I'm a firm believer that we have to assume that people are coming from a place of positive intent, especially if someone is really trying to engage another about their culture and their background. And if if that's the mindset that we all have when we are engaging in these types of conversations, I think that it lends to greater propensity for people to um, have productive dialogue around race and, and difference. I think also one of the challenges with having such a conversation is because we, as a society, we tend to view difference as either a right or wrong or superior or inferior instead of just simply as a point of respect in which things differ. And we can't really get offended if we see it just as different. The reason that we tend to get offended sometimes when we are engaging in conversations is because we try to classify it again as a right or wrong or inferior and superior. And really, um, that's not the way in which we should engage in those types of conversations. And you just gave me the title for a great article, unless you've already used it, um, (laughs) Cultural Competency Versus Political Correctness. 
<laughs> yes, I don't have an article out there about it, but I will tell you I speak about it a lot because that's what we should be driving towards is cultural competence, not political correctness. Political correctness keeps us at a place to where we are trained and conditioned to not be very authentic and transparent with our line of questioning and our ability to engage someone about their background. And, you know, we don't want to be in a society where we feel like we always have to walk on eggshells. Rather, we want to just be culturally competent, which allows us to engage in healthy dialogue around our differences. And I'm also fortunate because I'm actually recording, I'm now recording at a radio station and we're being live streamed and, and then we post it up on our podcast. But I'm recording at radio at mutinyradio.fm here in San Francisco. And what I love about this place is that we have people here doing podcasts from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, races, gender, and it's a great place to have those conversations. Uh, Nico, when was the first time you became aware of race? <laughs> um, I would have to say it's probably been uh, my entire life, as long as I can, you know, remember being able to, um, you know, have the wherewithal to engage in, in life in general. Um, growing up as an African American female, while I certainly had a lot of privileges that were um, provided to me. Um, I was very well aware of, of, of my race and the difference in terms of how, how which people of color sometimes are treated versus um, the majority counterparts. And I use that word very broadly when I say majority because that's all relative to where you are. And right now we're seeing that the changing face of America with the worldwide demographics are, are, are changing right before our eyes. So that, you know, that term is, is um, questionable depending upon how much you use it. But nonetheless, I remember even in the sixth grade, and I'm sure that this was not the first time that I really um, took notice of the fact that, um, you know, my race was certainly um, providing opportunities for me to be able to have a lens of the difference in which people of color versus others may have been experiencing. But I was in the sixth grade, and a really close family friend who owned a daycare, she also had a van service, and she came and she picked me up from middle school, and at this point in time, I was of age to be able to stay home by myself, so she was going to take me home, and I, my family had been very close to this particular individual for, for years, and so she proceeded to ask about my family as I got into the van, as she normally does, um, and she asked about my mom and my dad, and I said, everybody is fine, and then she proceeded to say to me with such great enthusiasm, your mom is the most beautiful black woman I've ever met. And even as a sixth grader, I knew that something was terribly wrong with what she perceived and intended to be a compliment. Now, what I also had the wherewithal to understand was that her, her intent was positive. She did not mean to um, create a negative experience for me or to say anything that was derogatory, but I knew that calling out my mom as a beautiful black woman, the most beautiful black woman, did not settle well with me. And so I've had examples like that all my life, Emma, that I can point to um, that has, you know, continued to remind me of, of my difference and of um, the way in which society sometimes views people that are um, not a part of the majority population. Well, and another stereotype that I hear from people, I mean, and, and they mean well, and I think we, have to, we do have to look at intention when we educate people where they'll either have to let you know that a black person they're talking about is really intelligent, really educated. If they're talking about a black woman, they have to let you know that, yes, 
and they're a really strong, powerful black woman. Right, right. And, you know, and let me say this, too, in all fairness, it's not just a conversation that happens among people that are non-black. You know, sometimes even when people of color are talking about, um, you know, other black women or black men, they, you know, sometimes the need is there to be compelled to share all of these great accolades before even putting it out there, the race of that individual. And so I think that's what society has done to us, unfortunately. So do you think that people are saying that because they think that they're, like, breaking the stereotype when they say that? Um, well, I'm not sure if they perceive it as a, an opportunity to break the stereotype. I think that we're just conditioned to think that way, just in general. Um, I know, for me, whenever I hear someone say um, that, you know, a, a person of color speaks very... Um, you know, articulately, I, I, I tend to cringe at that because I think to myself, did you expect something different? And um, so I think that sometimes we have to be, be bold enough to, in a very respectful way, call, call that out when we see it occurring, because if not, it perpetuates the problem. Because again, I do believe that people are, are well-intended. I think that sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And it's, it's like many microaggressions that take place every single day. Um, that land negatively on people, but the folks who are actually communicating those messages, they don't all the time really realize the um, the impact of, of their words. Now, and you were saying that you grew up with certain privilege. Do you mean economic privilege? Yeah, so I, I have this um, broader perspective about, you know, this word privilege that, quite honestly, I wish society in general would become a little bit more sophisticated in how which they talk about and define privilege. And so for me, when I say that I had a lot of privileges growing up, even as African-American female, um, it really just amplifies the, the notion that if all of us probably were to really take inventory of our lives and all that we've been able to realize and the experiences that we've had, you know, I, I tend to believe the majority of us probably could point to many opportunities of privilege. You know, so I always share that as a black female, I am privileged in many regards. I grew up in a home where I had both parents. My parents are still together to this day. I grew up in a home where I had more than enough from a you know financial uh, means. I grew up in a home where I really had the support of an extended family that was able to conditioned me to believe that honestly nothing was impossible for me. Not everyone has that type of support system. Um, I'm a well-able body individual, and so I could go on and on with thinking about the, the privileges that I have. And so it's not necessarily a respecter of person all the time. I think that where there's a huge opportunity for so many of us is to acknowledge our privilege and then to be very intentional to use it honorably in order to help others along the way that may not have been able to benefit from the privileges that we've had to benefit from. You know, and I think you're right. Oh, and by the, I just wanted to say, in case you or any of the listeners out there hearing any noise, there's some construction going on next door and some beeps. I don't know what it is. I was going to ask them to stop, but I didn't really want to be one of those obnoxious people getting in the way of, help, of people's jobs. Uh, you know, that would be like the height of, of assumed privilege. I, 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 you know, but and I think that well, a lot of people don't get, or maybe they do get it, but it's not real clear to a lot of people, that there's no one kind of privilege. There's a lot of different kinds of privilege that we have. And mm. to me, different kinds, like there's certain privileges 
that are more distinct and that maybe impact other people in different ways. But I liked I liked all the all the ways that you pointed out that you have privilege. And then, of course, there's the ways that you don't have privilege. Oh, absolutely. I think, and again, I just want to amplify the, the importance of acknowledging privilege. I think that's where privilege has garnered some negativity. Um, it's because, you know, there's a perception that people that are privileged, particularly you know, when we talk about privilege, you hear a lot of folks refer to white privilege. And it, you, typically it tends to boil down to white males, which is why I always like to make sure that I am giving emphasis to the broader context of privilege. I think that where it becomes a problem is when privilege is not acknowledged and recognized. And the reason I say that it becomes a problem is because it has the propensity when it's not acknowledged to lead to bias, meaning that if there, there's this distorted viewpoint of what privilege is. You know, people tend to believe that all of my opportunities and my successes have been earned, and so I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Everyone else needs to do the same, and that's not the case. You know, I. I, was, I had nothing to do with the fact that I had two parents that decided to remain together and, and create this stable home for myself and my sister. And that was just the cards that I was dealt, you know. But that's a privilege that I know has allowed me great opportunities. And so I think the same occurs for many other different, you know, areas of our lives. And if we don't acknowledge that, then it's going to cause us to believe that um, all others should be able to do the same not recognizing that people start at different places because of the cards in the hand that they're dealt. It's not means they don't have to run their own race, do what all that they need to do to be successful, but it just means that we do have to acknowledge where there could be opportunities for us to step in and allow our privilege to serve as influence and power to help others along the way. Yeah, like in some ways it's like having sort of like an automatic advantage. Oh, absolutely. And that's precisely what it is. It's an automatic advantage that had nothing at all to do with who you are. It's just the cards that you were dealt. Um, and I think that's an important distinction because certainly, you know, people reach a certain level of success, obviously by their own work ethic oftentimes. And so I don't want to deny people of, of that, but I also want to make sure that I'm bringing this balance to the conversation of privilege so that there's recognition to the fact that, that some of what we are experiencing success-wise has nothing to do with our own efforts and merit, just, but but rather it has a lot to do with just the cards we were dealt. You know, I heard somebody recount a conversation where a white person said, "Well, being white hasn't helped me get a job, or the color of my skin hasn't helped me get a job." To which the other person answered, "Yes, but." the color of your skin has not stopped you from getting a job. Right, right, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's also important when you talk about this broad conversation of privilege, especially knowing that there's so much misinformation out there, to acknowledge that the point in bringing this to the conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and race is not to pass on any guilt or shame or judge. It's just to really bring about... Um, greater clarity as to why this topic is so important for us to each understand because it has a lot to do with again with cultural competence and it has a lot to do with the way in which we view the world um, and we all know that implicit bias unconscious bias is, is something that we runs rampant in, in all of us every single day so we have to be mindful as to you know how do these other concepts and theories apply to this broader conversation that can help us to become 
more intentional in our efforts to um, foster an environment of acceptance and belonging for all types of people. I think that also I see a lot of um, two things. I see a lot of defensiveness around the word privilege. Sure. Which is why I'm really glad that we're having this discussion and explaining it in greater detail. And then I also see people talking about privilege that I'm thinking, what? Like somebody was saying that having your own business was a, is, was a privilege because they had to work at a job. And I'm thinking, no, man, you don't get it. Some people start their own businesses because they can't get a job or they've been fired or, from a job. And some of us start businesses, absolutely. maybe we can't pass a background check. You don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know um, a lot of people who go into entrepreneurship, not only for the reasons that you've mentioned, but perhaps they have some type of learning disability or maybe some type of you know mental challenge to where in a traditional work environment, they may not be able to be quite as successful. So they have to create that level of success for themselves. Um, and so I, I think we have to consider that um, while some may be able to see that as a privilege, because maybe you've been a part of a family that has been able to um, generate business over and over again quite successfully, and then maybe you were just the next beneficiary in line and it was handed off to you. But those are the circumstances. It's not everybody's situation. So some people find themselves you know, having to create work and become an entrepreneur for that reason. So you're so right. That's a good point. But I, again, I go back to the notion of we do have to be careful in how in which we present this conversation of privilege because we don't want to cause people to be on the defensive because they feel like they are being guilted or shamed simply because of who they are because they also think that that's counterproductive. Right, and that's, my, and that's part of my next question is in your work, how do you address race and connect to other differences? Well, so I think first and foremost, we have to start with um, ensuring that the people that are, you know, part of this, this large message and are contributing to the conversations, that they have a foundational knowledge base of what diversity is. And diversity is very broad. It's not just about the optics of age, race, and gender. There's so many different layers of diversity. And if we can get people to first and foremost buy into that, when you start to talk about all the different dimensions of diversity, I think it's much easier to be able to just have race as just one of, you know, a, a multitude of elements. And, and then it, it, it tends to allow people to have, um, I guess, a broader perspective than just having to think about it from, you know, what we normally um, would consider, you know, diversity to be, which, again, it kind of boils down oftentimes to the optics. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that we need to make sure we are including everybody in the conversation. You know, there's this whole notion of who's at the table, whose voice is being heard, whose voice is not being heard, and how do we create an opportunity to get them at the table in a very meaningful way. And so whenever I do a lot of diversity and inclusion, sessions or, or even counseling with different organizations that are looking to become much more strategic about how we say operationalize diversity and inclusion. One of the first things that I'm, I'm going to suggest and counsel them on is let's make sure that we're bringing all the key influencers to the table. And oftentimes that means a lot of the white men that are in those positions of power and of influence that can help 
change culture, create a stronger, healthier culture that can um, provide opportunities for women and people of color to be able to advance in a way that allows them to build their full opportunity for success. And so it starts at the very beginning with how in which we even define and talk about what is diversity, what is not. And it's also breaking down some of those stereotypes. You know, there are some people who are of the school of thought that um, unless you are a person that's part of that underrepresented population, you can't be effective at this work of being an inclusionist. And I don't believe that at all. Um, I believe that we all have a role and we all have different things that we can bring to this conversation. And in fact, you know, some of the probably most astute DNI practitioners that I know are people that are part of the majority population. Um, but I think there's something to be learned from the, the voice and the perspective that all of those different constituents can bring to this conversation. Now, and a question I have for you, as an African-American woman who has gotten to very senior levels in organizations, have you had, do you have any uh, examples of times when you've had to deal with bias or a way that that you've had to deal with somebody else's bias or just in or or consider somebody's bias oh my goodness um how much how much time do we have because <laughs> well, you know people really want to hear the stories about, people yes, want to hear the stories and i certainly can give you several examples and you know you know one of the things i think is always important to to, to bring up in a conversation like this is you know, we don't just have one identity. You know, there's there are multiple dimensions of diversity that can cause us to show up the way that we do. So I'm a female, so therein lies some challenges just with the, um, the, the gender disparity issue. You know, I have found myself in very high-level positions where um, my male counterparts were mistaken as the person in charge, whereas in reality it, it was me, you know, the person in charge. And so that has happened quite often. I remember even very specifically in a situation where when I worked in advertising and marketing and um, the, there was a white male that I was meeting with and I was, you know, in, in charge of, of this account and this client and I was, you know, executing all of the work strategically and even, you know, tactically for this organization. And I went to a meeting where my male, white male counterpart was accompanying me um, and I was you know, sharing information, giving a business case for some recommendations that we were putting before this client. And he stopped me midstream and said, I'm sorry, could you let him answer? And he was referring to my male counterpart. And um, I was fortunate to where my male counterpart was very supportive. And um, he honestly, you know, said pretty quickly, no, you really want Mika to address this because, you know, she's been running point on this account since day one, and she is much more versed to be able to address your questions and really give this the due diligence that it deserves in terms of helping you to understand this path forward plan that we're recommending. And so people like that I really value because sometimes um, – you need others that can step in and can be that voice of reason where someone is, is, is not being sensible or even doesn't even realize how their actions are negatively, you know, impacting the, the relationship. Um, but, you know, I also can speak to times where, as an African-American female, I felt that the opportunities for me to be able to advance myself to the next level, I had to become what I perceived to be superhuman. You know, people weren't quite as forgiven maybe of my mistakes and as and, and of my learning curve as they were maybe my white male counterparts. Um, 
And I remember feeling some days, oh, my gosh, I, I feel quite defeated because there's no way I can live up to the expectation because I always feel like I have to be perfect. And when you're under that type of stress in a work environment, it, it tends to cause more mistakes because now you're doubting yourself and your confidence is not where it needs to be. And all along the while, you are losing some of your um, your eagerness and enthusiasm about the position maybe that at one point in time you were really excited about because you're seeing all of these other people um, to excel uh, in, and, and surpass you in terms of opportunities on visible projects or even promotions. And, you know, that can become very disheartening. And so imagine, you know, being under that stress, yet still trying to live up to this superhuman type of, of, of mentality that people expect you to have. Um, and then, you know, of course, I'm sure, Fema, you have heard about the angry black female syndrome that a lot of um, black women get labeled as, strictly because they may be a little bit more passionate about their, you know, their, their voice or, you know, their concerns, um, or they may be perceived as quite aggressive and um, not, um, I don't know, not living up to the expectation that perhaps they, they deem um, black women should, 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 should have. And so I, I, I have experienced all of the above that I just described. And I know of many other women that um, I encounter, whether, whereby we are just kind of share same commonality. So I mentor a lot of people and I hear about it time and time again. So the examples are endless and, uh, and they're real and they're real. And I know that sometimes if you don't, if you have not experienced those types of, of situations and it's hard for you to really see it as something that's, that's valid, because I've also heard a lot of people to present the case of, okay, you know, just get over it, move on, have thicker skin. And I'll be honest with you that, that literally is, is even more disheartening because it shows the inability for people um, to not be able to see that there's a real problem. And if you don't see that there's a real problem, then you're perpetuating the problem because it's just going to continue. Yeah. And if you, and if other people don't see that there's a real problem and you're talking about it, then it starts making you feel like, am I nuts or what? Oh, absolutely. It becomes a negative reflection on the person that's trying to bring that to the surface, you know, um, I posted this message the other day um, on social media, and it, it was, you know, to the, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but to be African-American is to be African without memory and American without privilege. And, um, you know, wow. the, the, I know, it was really deep, isn't it? So it has garnered a lot of discussion and, and attention from people that kind of follow um, a, a lot of my work, but it's perspective that, for, it's perspective, particularly for those who can't understand why populations that have historically been oppressed, like African Americans and other people of color, um, that they can't leave the past behind and move on. It's not that those individuals want to stay focused on the past and the negativity of the past, but so much of what continues to occur in the present and in the future becomes a constant reminder. And if you're constantly reminded that you're, you are perceived to be less than, um, then it certainly weighs on the way in which we show up in the world. And, um, and so I, I think that's something that's hard for someone to understand if you have not found yourself at a place of oppression. And have you ever had any colleagues in any of your positions or even friends who weren't black who all of a sudden started acting like surprised that 
you be thinking this way? Well, since I've been in the space um, as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, I, one of the things that I have been really true to is my voice around this work. Um, I, have, I, I was very fortunate that my pathway into actually um, having my own you know, management consulting firm around this work is that I had already established myself as someone that was perceived as a really strong thought leader in this space. And not so much because I was able to offer a lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, but probably more importantly, because I already had proven myself as, as an astute business leader who was able to add value just from a business perspective in general. And it just so happened that once I started operating um, directly into the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I was able to combine all of those skill sets and experience to um, you know, create this holistic view of, of, of someone who really values inclusion but also values the importance of just organizational effectiveness and high performance and elevating excellence in that regard. And so I share that because I think that my journey allowed me to get a level of respect um, from those who may question, um, I guess, the, the voice that I have, had they not had history with me. Um, but one of the things that I always wanted to be true to was my voice around this work. I, I'm not one of those surface D&I practitioners. I really believe in getting to the crux of the matter, peeling back the onions, and really identifying what is the root cause of what we're seeing and how do we address that. So I often talk about the difference between activity versus impact. You know, activity doesn't necessarily lead to impact. We have to really make sure that we're impacting systems, that we're really getting, again, to the deep root cause of what's occurring that could compromise inclusion. And that can be a very uncomfortable place for people. But I find that those who are able to really realize the best results um, from operationalizing diversity, equity, inclusion are those who believe in not just being surfaced with this work, but really getting to the crux of the matter. And so for me, um, I even talk about how I've been fortunate to where now in my business, I, I can be selective with who I say yes and no to in terms of opportunities to partner and to consult and to train. I'm not really interested in those organizations who are looking to do this work for compliance reasons. I really want um, to work with organizations that are seeking change. And in order to really seek change that helps to shift behavior and to shift culture and to you know, shift systems, you have to be willing to get to the crux of the matter. And so I think that I have just gained a level of confidence about um, my, my passion for this work that I unapologetically present myself in that way. And sometimes, you know, it could be that some organizations will find it fit to, well, I just kind of want to, you know, check this compliance box and move on. I really don't want to have to uncover all of these deep-rooted issues. And that's fine, too. Um, it just... Um, it's just those are not the type of clients that I feel like I could best help. And, you know, I've, and, and I've been doing this work a long time also. And I, there was a time, and it seems to be having a resurgence, where all of a sudden everybody in their dog says they're a diversity and inclusion consultant. And right. when I talk to them, I'm thinking, what? You know, they have no concept of systems, no concept of changing processes or changing culture. And right. organizations will bring these people in. They might even hire them. And they report to, the, to a manager of HR. Whereas I know at one time, there were a lot more organizations 
where you had somebody who was doing DNI, who was a vice president or a chief diversity officer, who actually had some power and influence, and they sat in the room with the CEO. And oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, would you? So, what's been your experience? Do you see that sometimes too, or yes, too often? That is a must. That that is a must. And I'll tell you something else that I'm seeing, and I always quickly try to provide a different point of view for, for, for clients to consider if they find themselves at this place. But what I see is that when they want to start doing the work of diversity and inclusion, they tend to find someone already on staff, perhaps, but does not have experience in really um, helping to strategically think about how, to, how do we leverage diversity and inclusion for optimal results. And they will just layer on the responsibility of, of DNI to that person's function or job role. And, and I know why they're doing it. It's probably because they're trying to see how can we maximize the staff and the talent that we already have to be able now to do this work. And sometimes I, I cer- certainly can appreciate that that's where you may need to start. But my hope is to be able to impress upon those organizations that even though you start there, know that your ultimate goal is to find someone that really has the experience to facilitate this work in an effective way. Otherwise, what you're going to to encounter is that the work may fall by the wayside because you're going to be driven to do this work for reasons that um, do not lead to the sustainability of it, you know. And so I always tell people that as soon as you can find it appropriate within and feasible within your planning strategy to actually get someone on board that is in charge of leading this work, not solely, but leading the work in terms of creating those strategic partnerships with other department heads. But yes, I always advocate for that person to be at a senior level reporting into the, the highest level of the organization where appropriate. And I also will say, Simon, that a lot of organizations, they'll have the function of of DNI within HR. That's quite common. And the only thing that I will say about that is there's certainly merits because obviously you really are driving towards trying to impact the people in the organization. So your human capital is where the HR function is oftentimes. But we have to also consider that this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it extends beyond the HR function. I mean, you have organizations that if they're really looking to do this work effectively and in a sustainable way, they also need to be looking at their marketing strategies. You know, who is it are are they appealing to from their consumer um, constituency base, um, who are they featuring within their marketing, what kind of messaging and positioning insights are you able to get by having um, diverse point of view at the table as you're coming up with those marketing strategies. Even consider your procurement department and your purchasing department. You know, what are you doing to make sure that you are including women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, and the consideration set for bid opportunities? And so it's much deeper than just the HR function, which is why I always advocate for organizations to think much broader about this topic. The other thing that I will say, too, because you, you, you sparked this thought when you when you mentioned early on that a lot of organizations will just use those those terms because it's, it's the right thing to do. You know, they want to have diversity and inclusion in their corporate speak because, it's, again, those are those sexy buzzwords that, you know, organizations feel like they have to have as part of, of their, their branding. But um, I always say that if it were up to me, I would completely eradicate the words diversity and inclusion because I feel that those words have lost its power because they have become just these buzzwords that people are tossing around without the true essence of how do we operationalize it. 
And, and I think that it's causing some people to have this barrier whereby they aren't able to really engage in an effective way. And I see it day in and day out. When organizations bring me in to diversity and inclusion training, you know, when people hear that, it's like, here we go again, another diversity and inclusion training, but what's going to become of it, you know? And the last point that I'll make relevant for this is the reason that we have to get to a place to where we're really thinking deeply about this work is because in order to change systems and to change organizations, we have to change people. So this work really starts at the personal level. People are the ones who make up institutions. People are the ones who are um, engineering these systems and these policies and these practices so that change can occur. So if we're not allowing this message to reach people at the personal level first, we're only going to be but so successful in being able to see the the results really optimized within the institutions. I completely agree with you, like more than 100%. I know that now I talk, when I first started my business, I used to talk about creating inclusive cultures where everyone could do their best work. And then I started moving into the D&I and focusing on D&I. And now I'm back to creating inclusive cultures that last where everyone can do their best work. Because because D&I in so many ways has become like, yeah, I do D&I, yeah, and and the HR person's in charge of D&I, which to me means that the CEO has abdicated, has really abdicated. And... Maybe there, people are afraid of transformation, but I know we all have to change. And I really like what you said about changing personally. Uh, I, I know that there were a lot of things I didn't understand when I first started. And um, one question I have for you is what dimension or what area of, of diversity would you say you didn't understand and you had to spend some time learning about and it, it changed how you think? Wow. Um, so there's so many different, you know, again, dimensions of diversity. I, I, I would say that um, the LGBTQ community was certainly one, and it continues to evolve in terms of how which people, you know, talk about the LGBTQ community in general. In fact, just the other day, I was doing a, spec- a session, and I had to, um, I, I took out the T because I was trying to get people to recognize that, um, you know, lesbian, gay, and bisexual relate to your sexual preference, but orientation. While, yes, but while transgender gets lumped into that, that's more about the gender aspect of diversity. You know, and so sometimes it's just small nuances like that that we don't necessarily even consider or think about. Um, you know, just in general, you mentioned that we have to create environments where people can do their best work. I think it's I think it's all about creating a sense, a strong sense of healthy belongingness. And I always share some of that it is hard for anyone to show up in any environment at their best if they're always questioning whether or not they belong. And so when you think about that and you think about our responsibility to really try to value and effectively manage human difference, all types of human difference, we have to be culturally confident and we have to understand about all those different dimensions of diversity getting to your question, because if we don't, then we potentially run the risk of not being able to allow people to feel a sense of belongingness. And we rely on our peers every single day to show up for us at their best in the environment as we try to co-create you know, success in whatever you know, realm in which we now have this common interest or affiliation around. And so it, it is up to us. It's not enough just to say, well, I didn't know that, because the consequences of not knowing something certainly does not exonerate us from 
the ramifications or the implications of our actions. Well, I think we have to always be willing to learn. I know that for me, when I first started in this work, one reason why I started doing it was because my life is, you know, my, my family is interracial, interfaith, interblo- into everything. And I thought, right. okay, I want my life to be fully integrated. And when I first started doing this work, this is like almost 30 years ago, there were still people who said they were big proponents of diversity. However, they did not believe that LGBT people had a place at the diversity table. And, right. and when I first started doing this work, it was, I mean, I didn't get a, I, I didn't get a job. One, one woman like took me out of, a, out of a team because she found out that I was gay. And, mm-hmm. and I started trying to hide. I didn't pretend I was something else, but it was like that same effort of having to hide and not using pronouns. It was, it was, it was very exhausting. And right. I had, but there were things that I didn't understand, but I was at a conference it was a diversity conference, a multicultural um, service con- con- conference in, in, in an industry. And the main speaker got up and made a homophobic joke. And almost wow. everybody, except for three people at the table, this is like 24 years ago, 22 years ago, almost every single person laughed. There were three of us okay. who did not laugh. And... Now, years later, it, turned, it turns out that some of the people from that organization, particularly the person who was the, the director, is the biggest, one of the, a, a huge ally of LGBT people. Right. You yeah. know, so people can, yeah. and, and, he, and he brought me a couple of times to speak at his conferences. So just like when you brought me, there were people right. who said, wow, I love the way you talked about it. I never thought about it before. Yes, yes. And I cannot tell you, Simba, how many people I had to approach me when I brought you to Greenville to say thank you so very much for including this topic into this conference. And so it, it really made an impact. And I think that the more we continue to evolve and to learn and explore and discover, the more we are knowledgeable, which allows us to, again, it goes back to your very first question. How do we have these conversations about difference in a way that's really productive? You know, I, I and I want to go back to the, the, the your sharing of um, inappropriate comments or joke that was made at that particular conference 24 years ago. And again, I certainly hope that we have advanced far enough to where those types of um, incidences are occurring less and less. But even if it occurs once, it's still way too many. But I always talk about when those situations occur, you know, you have the perpetrator, you have the victim. And then you have the witness where I feel like there's a huge opportunity for greater coaching and counseling is on the witness, because sometimes we tend to forget that when you're a witness to something of that nature, you also have a responsibility. You have a responsibility because silence is a message as well, and it can perpetuate the problem. And not only is silence a message, for all of those that may have laughed at that joke, they also sent a really strong message, which was maybe the next time you want to tell an off-color joke that's inappropriate, you can come back to this audience because we'll laugh again. We'll, 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 We'll be that entertainment, you know. And I think that sometimes we don't realize how our inability to respond effectively can perpetuate such incidents. 
um, and, and allow them to keep recurring. And so I always like to tell people, if you're a witness to it, you also have a responsibility. And so it behooves us as leaders, as people of influence, to, um, to make sure that we are well-trained as to how do we effectively deal with those off-color comments and those jokes and remarks. And, um, and I think that's an important lesson for us as well. I think that's that's extremely important when people bring me in to talk about like allyship yeah. that and and some people will say, well, I don't really need this. You know, I, I'm against racism. I'm against homophobia, blah, 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 blah. But we could all be against things. But the reality is that there's kind of a skill sometimes. There's a skill in knowing what to say when you jump in and support somebody and oh, you have to practice it. Yes. And we have to be very mindful about the environment in which, you know, these comments are, you know, could be made. Because, you know, I don't believe in embarrassing people and shaming people and guilting people. But sometimes we do have to be bold enough as leaders to make the decision. And sometimes all we have is a split second to consider if this person is publicly making this remark, do I now publicly address it? You know, or is this an opportunity where I can run the risk of just pulling that person aside one-on-one? And sometimes that can be a really delicate and hard decision, especially considering that oftentimes we are in organizations where we have to manage up. Sometimes those off-color comments and remarks are coming from senior leaders within organizations. Now, you know, tell me about a risk. That's a huge risk. But sometimes we have to be willing to take that risk. And, and even if it's calculated for the sake of, again, trying to preserve the, the importance of belongingness and acceptance and, and inclusivity. You know, one of the things that I say oftentimes is that I believe that there are more people in this world that really do, at their core, care about an inclusive society. But what I also believe is that those individuals, majority of those individuals, are passive about it, which means that they see the responsibility as the work of someone else and not themselves. They don't own it necessarily. And I think that's an important opportunity for each of us to help really further this work is if we take responsibility for owning it. You know, I see that sometimes people can appreciate, well, I'm a part of an organization where we do talk about diversity and inclusion, and we try to effectively create an inclusive environment, but they sit back and they allow, or they see it as the person that maybe carries the title of, you know, chief diversity officer, manager, director, or even maybe the HR professionals to really facilitate that instead of saying, what's my responsibility in it? How can I not foster this, this type of culture and environment? And so I want to get people that maybe find themselves being passive about it or maybe indifferent to to see it as a responsibility to not be passive but to be you know much more vocal about um, intentionally creating opportunities for inclusion to occur in a very meaningful and effective way I com- I completely agree about responsibility and I mean that's one reasons why why I have this show because and a lot of times I'll have like two guests from different cultures, different backgrounds so that we could have like a round table discussion because sure. I see a lot of people, the people who I see doing shows about race tend to be mostly people of color and tend to be mostly black men and do great shows. However, why should they always have to have that responsibility? And oh, a lot of the white people that I see talking about race it's either as a visitor you know like they're kind of on tippy toes they don't know how to how to actually ask the questions or they're like so guilty i'm guilty beat me up whatever i'm a, you know i don't know what but I, so I, I feel like it's i feel like i have a responsibility i mean i have a passion and i love doing this 
But I also think that it's really important in the whole race conversation. Of course it is. It's, it's critically important. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I find that of all of the dimensions of diversity, race is probably one of those that is perceived to be the most complex. And so I'm glad that you are really focused on race, because in some regards, I think that if we can get people comfortable with the race conversation, then all of the conversations around the other dimensions of diversity will be much easier, you know. And I, and I think that um, it will, again, help us to further this work in a more sustainable, meaningful way. Yeah, I agree. You know, in my business in my business work, I don't know. I mean, race is, is part is, is part of it because I'm looking at systems and processes. And that's another mm-hmm. reason why I, I said, well, how can I deal with the issue? Because I do want to look at systems and processes in, in business and creating great workplaces for everybody. But that's another reason why I, I decided I needed to do this podcast. You know, I'm looking at the time and the hour goes, these hour, it go, it, this hour went so fast. I mean, I could just keep on talking to you and, and I want to talk to you more and I, I want to bring you back again. Uh, I want to, do you have any last minute comments? And also, please let people know your website, how to reach you, um, and the name of your most recent book. Oh, sure. So first, again, thank you so much for having me. So much. You know, you're right. This hour has gone by extremely fast, but I'm grateful for the invite. Um, the, the one point that I would like to leave listeners with is I believe in the importance of seeing inclusion-mindedness as a leadership function. So if you're out there and you're listening, I guarantee that you are a leader, which means that you have influence and that you have the ability to create change within the environments in which you dwell and belong. And so see that as power, as power to help create greater inclusivity, because it is, it is a leadership function, it's a leadership competency, and it has a growth capability, which means that if you don't know where to start, there are multiple ways in which you can grow your competency as an inclusion-minded person. There are way too many webinars, way too many podcasts like this, you know, way too many books and conferences and way too many people that carry tons of experiences just because of their background and their cultures for us to not become more culturally competent and um, more of an advocate for um, inclusion. So uh, my latest book is Next Level Inclusionist, and it's all about transforming yourself and your work for diversity, equity, and inclusion success. And if you go to my website, which is NikaWhite.com, N-I-K-A-W-H-I-T-E, you can be linked directly to where you can purchase the book. There's also tons of white papers and other blog articles out there. I would love to engage with as many of you as possible. And I will take a moment to also mention my first book, um, that has been out there now for a few years, but it's called The Intentional Inclusionist. And it's all about helping to transform at the personal level the way in which we view our responsibility towards, as leaders, creating inclusive environments. And so I have enjoyed being with you, Sema, and I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I look forward to finding ways to collaborate again together in the future. I do too. I look forward to collaborating in the future. And I love that that we both use the word inclusionist because I thought I made up the word and you probably thought you made up the word also. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. So yes. no one else could use it. It's ours. Inclusionist is our <laughs> word. I'm with you. I am with you. Yeah, it's such a great word. Yes. We can't allow it. Well, um, Dr. Nico White, I'm so happy that you were on the show. And uh, 
and to finish and to and to close, this is Sima, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. Please go to www.raceconvo.com to hear more episodes and help us get the message across of eliminating fear of differences and bringing people together by sharing this podcast with everyone you know who wants to stop hate and spread love. Reach me at www.simalieberman.com. Hit me up on Twitter at The Inclusionist and invite me to speak at your next conference, meeting, or event. Signing off until next time, Sima The Inclusionist. I want to talk.
This is Simma Lieberman, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, where we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and show people that it can be done. If you like what you hear today, please go to www.raceconvo.com and listen to more podcasts. If you really like what you heard today and you want to help us keep going, please consider making a small donation, no matter how small or no matter how large. If you've ever wanted to have a conversation about race but were afraid to do so, afraid of saying the wrong thing, or afraid of not being heard or trivialized, then this podcast is for you. I'm really happy today to have a friend of mine, um, my friend Laron, who is going to be my my guest today and yeah, we yeah, have yeah. just come I've just come back from a long vacation down in Southern California with my son so just getting it together again got back late last night it took me like 12 hours to get back so Laron would you introduce yourself hey, Laron how you Barton. Guys doing? my name is Laron Barton I am a writer living in San Francisco California I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, South Side, um, and I'm just really excited to be on this podcast today. It's my second time go around with Sima, so you know, second time around, <laughs> you know. So we're gonna make it better than the first time. Um, I write about race, mass incarceration, politics, gender, as well as dating on occasion. Um, I published two books. My first book is Straight Dope: A 360 Degree Look into American Drug Culture. My second book is All We Really Need Is love stories of dating relationships heartbreak and marriage uh, i've been published in salon the good men project uh sf bayview um buzzfeed uh ravishly uh east bay express um i've been featured on al jazeera's the stream uh recently done a tedx and i am and one of my last goals this year is to figure out how to do a handstand, which I'm probably not going to be able to, uh, be able to knock out by, by the end of the year. But, you know, it's it's all good. I'm, I'm super happy to be back. Shout out to everybody in the Mutiny Radio, the super-duper lovely Pam, and I'm just ready to rock and roll, Sim. Let's get it. So you could, you could see or hear why I have Laron on my show again. Yes. Laron, would you tell people a little bit about yourself in terms of demographics? For instance, like I'm a white Jewish woman who is a baby boomer. Right. Well, um, so I am a uh, six foot two, like 198, 205 black male. Uh, <laughs> uh, man, like, um, gosh, uh, demographics, I'm um, heterosexual. Uh, I, um, I'm a humongous uh, Derrick Rose fan. Uh, I still love the Niners, even though I don't watch football these days. And uh, the best portable food in the world is a hamburger. That's uh, what, uh, and what else would you like to know? So, Luron, since we talked, I don't know, about a month or so ago. Yes, yes, ma'am. Do you still think it's important to talk about race? Um, so I, I think race is the most incendiary topic in just in life and in culture. And I, and I feel like that um, I feel like that we should talk about race. I, I, I think there should be sort of, uh, I guess, boundaries and sort of different reasons. I'm, I mean, I from. For me personally, um, I don't have a lot of conversations about race 
with with white people because I just feel like that um, that as, that at some point you know we need to kind of move we need to kind of move on from that and kind of do something else you know I, I I love the fact that I'm seeing like white people having conversations with race among other white people and just you know kind of getting them straight and and you know kind of getting them together but as far as just like the like the the teaching like you know white folks or or you know how can I be a better ally like I just I just feel like that 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 time has come it's 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 over you know we need to move on I mean like there's just too much data there's too much information uh writing books uh songs uh just you know protest I mean there's there's too much stuff for people to play dumb you know my grandfather once said there's no excuse for ignorance so yeah so when we talk about having conversations about race, yes, ma'am. What are we talking about anyway? Um, well, you know that's a that, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, you and you know you and I, you know, we're two colleagues here, so you know we talk about race from the perspective of what's been going on, uh, you know, policy, uh, the news, uh, you know, even even a bit of a personal, but it's not coming from. This angle of, well, you know, I'm the magic Negro. I have to teach you like it's 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 not that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I do know what you mean. I mean, but oftentimes, I mean, like I see people now. I mean, I see people, primarily white people, but but other people, too. Again, like I would say, this is not to generalize or stereotype any particular group. But there's some things that are cultural norms. And I'll see more white people really being afraid to talk about race. And then what ends up happening is they don't talk about it. And what they end up doing is they pretend that people of color don't even exist because I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I say nothing and I just ignore people. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't understand that, that part of the game. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, um, I think there is a fear of being, uh, of being offensive. I mean, I, I think that, uh, people, the worst thing that people can be called is racist. And I think the worst thing that a man can be called is, 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 is a rapist. Right. So, you know, unfortunately these conversations don't happen, but I think that, you know, men are, you know, comfortable with, you know, with, you know, raping, just like I, I think mm-hmm. white people are comfortable with, practicing racism white supremacy so it's it's one of those it's it's one of those things where it's like it never gets brought up because you know uh when when we talk about race the whole conversation is framed around okay well you know we don't want to be too angry you know like you know we don't want to tell too much truth so you know we water it down and um i i heard a quote recently from uh political commentator yvette carnell you know, shout out to her. She's a really amazing person. She said, when we get watered down ideas, we get watered down solutions. So, I mean, it's like, um, you know, if we're not telling the truth, then, and if we're not speaking honestly, and, you know, I don't think that we're ever going to, we're really going to be able to get to a point where we just have a, uh, where we're able to really tackle this, the system itself. And, you know, if, if we're just too busy worried about people's feelings, you know. You know, and you said something, couple. you said about anger. Right after Obama was first elected, I actually was contacted by CNN and they asked me what I thought about Obama. Should Obama 
be more emotional? Would he be seen as angry? And we had to talk about that. And I said, yeah, if he show, if he was angry or if he got, if they, he was upset, people would start going, oh, he's, he's really angry. He's an angry black man. On the other hand, if he didn't express any emotion, they'd say, oh, he's just cold. Right. Um, so I'm not just not a fan of Obama. I think he's the biggest coward I've ever seen in my life. But okay, you, I disagree. But go ahead. But I mean, like you know, look, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm not saying I think he's the bravest man in the world either. But but I just I have to say I don't always agree with everything that my colleagues right. say. But that's cool. Go it's ahead. All, um, it's all gravy. It's, um, um, it's all good. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I mean, like it was. It's been like it's been like two years since. Uh, I mean, I, I've have to. I mean, I. I've been able to sort of look at him differently. I'm, I'm, I mean, I still hold, I still hold the same views. I, I don't have a lot of respect for him, but at the same time, um, there's a great Chris Rock joke where he says, "When you're the black man with the job, like you know, you have to do certain things." And so he was he he wanted to position himself as a unifier, and you know what? Hey, you know, I dig that. You know what I mean? It is what it is. But I think. One of his major failings is like he did not he 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 didn't give up on on that. Right. And at some point, you know, you have to sort of, you know, give up, uh, give up on that. I mean, my father knows him and, and you know, we, we were talking about him a couple a uh, couple months ago. I said, you know, I don't want to like I, I don't want to meet him. I don't even if you know and if I did meet him, I don't, I don't even know if I would even shake his hand. You know, and he said the problem with Obama is that he he didn't want to piss anybody off. And, you know, to make an omelet, you know, you got to break some eggs. So, you know, whether he, you know, if he shows it too much emotional, he's I'm sorry, too much emotion. He's going to be too angry. If he doesn't there, there's going to be another problem. So it's like, you know, you know, you can't win. So if you look at it from that perspective, uh, and be like, you know what, there, there's really nothing that I can do. I'm, I'm just going to move the way that I want to move. You you know, and that's one of the things that that's one of the two things that I really respect about Trump is that Trump is like, look, huh? Trump is like, look, I'm not the yes. Trump is what, 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 what you say you respect about Trump or you just think that he's what he's doing is right for what he's doing. Um, So I think he's a horrible man. But yeah. two things that I respect about him is uh, is that he's going to do what he wants to do. And he's very transparent. You know, Trump. He's not a politician, right? So, you know, the the Democrats, whoever, you know, they're still trying to figure out, oh, my God, how did Trump win, win, win 2016? And and in my my opinion, it's not that he was a racist, not this. I mean, that had uh, that had a lot to do with it, but just that he's not a politician. So when you have politicians, they're going to double talk. And, and and if you notice, they never really answer a, uh, a question directly, right? It's always like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to move around the question. I'm, I'm trying to do the, I'm trying to do this, that, and a third. But it's like with, um, with Donald Trump, he's just straight to the point, and people, people well, can't. What do you uh, mean by straight to the point? Well, so what, so what I mean is, uh, it is is like, if you would have asked some, asked somebody, say a more seasoned politician, somebody like a Bernie Sanders, or you know, I, I think Hillary Clinton was a master at this. 
she would never give you a direct yes or no answer, right? She kind of like be, well, you know, we have to consider this and with this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like with Trump, Trump is like, no, we're going to do this. Yes, we're going to do this. And for a lot of people who don't like who don't like politicians because a lot of them compromise with Trump, He's not really compromising. So, oh no, he's not compromising. He's not compromising at all. Right. So, I mean, with that being said, so like you have to look at the way he's moving, and he's like, and and he's doing exactly what his base wants him to do. That's probably the first time I've ever seen a politician do exactly what they what they want uh, their elected official to do. And and I mean, he's just beyond terrible but his folks you know the the republican base oh, yeah. his people you, his people are extremely loyal to him and and they're excited because he's because he's living up to them to them, to them promises man and I'm like so that's why like with you know, like yeah like the grand wizard <laughs> wow <laughs> you know i'm I mean? sorry we I gotta go there early damn, damn something like um it's, it's not even 10 30 what's going on we already uh we already talking about like the grand the grand wizard here <laughs> well i have my disagreements with obama and there's nobody that i the only person who i think would be a really great president would be me um, oh my god totally but on, i'm not nobody's voting for me and i haven't you know started what, listen, getting like, elected if, yet if you wanted to, if you want to start a campaign, I uh, I campaign with you for for real. Like, you come on, like a uh, super super smart chic woman who just has lots of ideas and who does yoga. Come on, like you can't get any more forward than that, right? Well, I'm older than you, so I could start <laughs> out by I could be the president, and then you could be the vice president. And you could take over since you've got a lot more years. You know what? Uh, uh, no. Uh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. I want, but I want to go back to the whole emotional, right? About being angry. Something that I was thinking about, you know, because I, I think a lot about cross race conversations, about race, cross orientation conversations, about sexual orientation, and you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer because I think people need to know each other. Absolutely. And the time has to be right, and the conversation has to be right. And then I have to look at, well, what are we going to do now? Because right. just talking is like, blah, 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 blah. Aren't we sweet and fun? No, but we need to be able to get into solutions, but I think we have to build a foundation. But something I was thinking about, and has to do with seeing people, at, you know how like a lot of times um, you'll have like white people who will interpret try to interpret for a person of color like a person of color will be angry and the white person will kind of go oh well you have to understand what they've been through blah blah right. blah blah or i'll see that like with a straight person like a gay person will be upset and they have to say no you have to understand and then they try to go oh calm down or i'm a good white person so calm down angry black person but but i was thinking about roles and about roles that people play. And this is what got me thinking about this. I was on a conference call, I don't know, about a, a, a recently, and I was the only LGBT person on the call. And somebody on the call said something that was homophobic. Oh, and, word? What, and, did, what did they say? What they said was they were talking about religion and talking about how, you know, their religion was right and 
people need to understand why they have strong thoughts about homosexuality and while they would allow somebody who was homosexual using that word into their church they probably wouldn't allow them to speak wow just and they equated so, it, so you can be a visitor just not a participant right and they and they equated it with alcoholism and sex before marriage okay. so are, are i got upset now what happened was the other people on the call, and it was about diversity. And we were talking, and it was about diversity. And these people are like diversity champions. They're really cool people. But, you know, everybody sometimes misses a mark. So, and since that wasn't the topic that we were actually talking about, the topic was not about LGBT, but that was just kind of, she threw that in. And I said it was a bigoted statement. And she got upset. She got upset. So then afterwards... The straight people were mad at me. Wow, for real? Yeah, that I shouldn't have called her a bigot and blah, 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 blah. And I said, look, I did not call her a bigot. I said it was a bigoted statement. Right. And afterwards, I was feeling bad. Oh, you know, I started feeling like, you know, I'm the bad lesbian. I'm the bad, you know, I'm I'm the juvenile delinquent. No, brings back all that other stuff when I was like a juvenile delinquent type. And then I, I called some people. They said, no. So I wrote a note and I explained, I said, but I said, I was disappointed that the straight people didn't say anything even afterwards. And so what I realized afterwards was that what I would have liked for the straight person to do, because, you know, like white people will oftentimes, you know, when we talk about race, we'll listen to other white people before oh, they listen to a person of color. And straight oh, yeah, people will listen to straight people, which is why, like, when gay marriage got passed, it was because straight people got involved, which was great. But straight people will listen to straight people first. Right. And so then I realized, yes, the role of the straight person should have been to explain to that woman that why what she said was bigoted, but not to make an apology for me. Absolutely. So, and then I was thinking the same thing about race. That, okay, so, because I have a right to my, of course I'm going to get emotional, I'm going to get upset. So, if I'm with you, and um, we're around some white people, and, and they say something racist, and you get upset, it's not my role to say, oh, Laron, come on now. You know, or to apologize, but as a white person, I need to be upset and talk to these white people because they're going to listen to me more than they're going to listen to a black person. Right. But if I say nothing, or because I, th- I think that what happens a lot is that people who are not the target will then try to smooth things over. But the thing is, not smooth things over. You want to educate. You want to bring people to a different level. And smoothing things over. And and then what they end up doing is they blame the person, they blame the black person, or they blame the gay person when, hey, we didn't say those things. Right. Man, see, that that really blows. And, you know, for... For one, like that's not a that's not an ally. I'm I'm I mean, so, you know, so let's just kind of break this down. So the woman that that was saying the bigoted stuff, you know, you know, she not only said bigoted things, she's a bigot. I mean, that's I'm, I mean, come on, like, look, 
we got to call, you know, we got to call it like uh, like we see it for one. So, I mean, yeah, you know, she was uh, she was horrible doing that Two, um, I think that the people that got mad at you, like, that's what I'm really like uh, uh, offended by. I'm, I mean, it's like, yo, like, you know, you call yourself an ally, you know, you say that you stand up. But a lot of times and this is what I call like crunch time. Right. So like when crunch time comes up people fold and you know some people are just not okay with con- with confrontation from for me i have a weird relationship with confrontation like when i'm with my partner i i'm like you know let's you know, like whatever you want i just want this just to be over <laughs> like <laughs> but you know when it comes to like public i'm like okay what's up let's bring it on let's do it um i think that them getting mad at you. Like, I just, I don't want to, you know, it's one of those things. Some it's like one of the things like I've been following lately has been the, uh, women's March, uh, issue that, you know, believe her name is Tamika Mallory and Linda Sansor. They've been sort of having problems with, uh, you know, Jewish women that have been coming out and that, and that have been saying, Oh, you know, um, why don't you distance yourself from, uh, from Farrakhan and a lot of women, they have been like, why are you bringing race into this? This is about women. But what they fail to see is like race overrides everything. So before to, and this is just my opinion before Tamika Mallory is a woman, she's black before Leonard Sansor is a woman, even before she's uh, even before she's a Muslim, she's a, uh, she's a Palestinian person. So the fact that they got mad at you for, for bringing up something that I mean, mind you, she said the she said the foul shit like, yo, like, and you were just responding. I'm surprised you just didn't give them a dial tone. Like I'm surprised you you just didn't just hang up. No, but afterwards. Okay. But let me just say this, that afterwards, uh, somebody else actually talked to the straight people. Right. And they got it. Okay. You know, and they got it. And I, you know, because what their thing was, oh, that's not what we were talking about. We should stick to this subject. Um, so, you know, they were in a linear thing, whatever it was. But other people did talk to them. But my point was not, not even so much to go off on that tip, but to look at for anybody, like if somebody's making a comment that is racist, that is homophobic, whatever, and you're not of that group. Right. It's not your responsibility, and it's really messed up if you try to apologize yeah, no. for the person that got upset. No, you need to stand with that person. Absolutely. And you don't have to voice, you have to, and if you want to educate people, you want to talk to people in a way that they hear it because we want to convert people. But at the same time, I have seen too many times when people will try to apologize who, who say that the allies and what they end up doing because they feel uncomfortable they right. don't want the other person they don't want like that other white person or the straight person to be mad at them but if you really stand oh, for something oh, well. you have to take a stand absolutely you know i mean and i think that's different ways of talking to people too yeah no like um so the way that i feel like it is like if, but don't apologize for no me. like uh no like for one like you know i don't you know look i don't want your apologies a b i think that it's cool for you to stand up but if i'm there i i can handle myself i mean the thing is is like you know say you know if i'm the only black person in the room and you know, it's just a gang of white folks and someone says something you know that 
could be perceived as being racist. Some black people just will not uh, will not say anything because they don't want to make white people yeah, feel, and, or they're the feel only one. They're exactly. The only one. So it's like they're like it takes time to get there to the point where you stand up and say, "Listen, I'm not okay with that." Like so, that's cool if if a white person has my back, but if I'm there specifically, if LaRon Barton is there, I'm going to jump up, you know, I'm going to jump off the porch and I'm going to say something. Now, if there are no, now see, here's the, see, here's the kicker. If you're a real ally and there's no black people in the room, if someone says something racist, it is up to you to, uh, to check that person immediately. No, if, ands or buts. And it's ways that you can, it's ways that you can do it. You know, like my really good friend, David Chastine, he believes in a gentle shame, (laughs) which, you know, I, I mean, shaming like, you know, you either uh, you either you either love it or hate it, but it's up to you to, you know, um, to say something. Um, I, I mean, this is what you need to do. You need to say something. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And the other thing I thought of is times when I have spoken up and maybe there's only been one person of color in the room and somebody said something, but maybe that person of color isn't going to say something. Maybe they don't feel comfortable. They're the only right. one, whatever. Absolutely. But if that happens and you're going to be the one who's going to speak up, then what you don't want to do is then turn around to that person of color and say, hey, what do you think about it? Yeah, no, listen, like, you know, you already know what they think about it. You, you know what I mean? We're not uh, we're not dumb people here. So there doesn't need to be any apologizing. You also don't you also don't want to white explain like, you know, we can you know, we can speak for ourselves, but. Again, sometimes we don't feel comfortable. I mean, it's a yeah. it's it's a really fine line. You, you know, that's that's one of those really tricky situations, Emma. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in a situation where somebody said something anti-Semitic, and I was going to say something, but before I said something, somebody else jumped in, and what they said was right. And then I chimed in, and I said, "Yeah, and I'm Jewish, and I think blah blah blah," and I was glad. That's really glad, you know, that they, I said, hey, you know, thank you, because what they said, they, you know, they came out right the way that they said it came out right. I'm wondering what you think about this, this situation that just happened. Uh, I can't remember what city it was even. Sure. But there was a monument. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, South Carolina. So, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was interesting because I know they, they're trying to, like, come up with a way of solving the problem. So there was a monument. There was a, a, there was a, a black community. Right. And there was a white attack on the black community. Yeah. Like, right. something like seven black people were killed. Right. One white person was killed. And there was a monument to the white person who was killed saying something like, Trying to preserve our culture. Yeah. Now, and a lot of people, did, yeah, and a lot of people didn't know what it was even for. So then they started investigating, and I think it was it was the mayor, uh, who was a white guy, and I think legally they weren't allowed to move the monument. Legally, he couldn't move the monument. So what he said was that then he was going to put up a monument to the seven black people who were killed. Man, that so to me, that's real. That's real ill. Right. So you are essentially preserving this monument of this terrorist attack on black folks just trying to live and prosper. Um, You know, honestly, I've never heard anything good about South Carolina. Like, yo, 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 I'll uh, say something good about South Carolina, but go ahead. Like, yeah, like straight up. Like, I mean, 
I'm a barbecue dude. Like from what I hear, their their barbecue is sauce or whatever <laughs> is, is very vinegary. Um, I'm from Missouri, home of the best barbecue in the entire world. Of course, but, <laughs> of right. course. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's like you know. I, so I went to the South recently. I went to uh, Alabama, you know, to do my TED. And, man, like, um, Florence, Alabama is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life, right? I mean, I didn't expect it to, to be just this wonderful and the people were, were warm. You know, shout out to Mary Marshall. Shout out to Ruby. Um, and just, you know, everyone was just, was just wonderful. But just South Carolina, I mean, the fact that they still have that monument up is just like, wow. I'm, I'm, I mean, so... We're going to ignore the seven people, seven black folks that got killed. And, and, and again, they're they're just trying to just build up their own community. You know, wasn't anything that they were doing. They were just living. And so the fact that it's protected by state law, I mean, that's just I should not be surprised because, I mean, you know, these things are so commonplace. I mean, tearing down these statues, I, I guess that what this this official is proposing to do it. I guess that's the only, that's the only way to really rectify it. I mean, you can't tear it. You can't tear it down. Right. Because let's say someone tries to bulldoze or just, you know, some brave soul decides to deface it or just destroy it. They're probably going to erect it again. That person is probably going to face some time. So, um, again, I don't know why people live there, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's oh just, my it, goodness! It's okay. just some spots. Like, I I've worked in South Carolina, but but I think it was an interesting because he was saying I mean this disagreement, but he was saying well if if I have to keep up this white monument, right. then I'm making seven monuments because we're going to do a monument for each black person that was killed. I think that's dope. Like I'm like uh, I'm. I mean, look. Like you know, I would that's prefer it it to be down. Yeah. But again, like that's what we call in IT a good workaround. So I just feel like that at the end of the day, you know, that's that's all that we can do. I mean, it's it's a shame that. You know, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a white was a white supremacist racist monument, and it's still standing. So, you know, if you want, if you want to change the. Um, the outlook or change the perception of your state, change the perception of your city, you don't have those kind of things still erected there. I mean, some people will, will say, well, Laurent, we need these statues to be up to remind people of how things were. I'm like, yeah, well, in a museum, exactly. Put it in a museum for history. Exactly. Put it in a museum. You can, you can you Google don't it. Erase history. No, like, you know, it's not about erasing history. It's just about writing. It's, it's about writing wrongs. Like I do think that, that those kind of relics need to be in, in, in museums and places. And, and, and plus like, if you're pro America, right? If you're pro country, then why are you siding with traitors? Because that's a Confederate monument, right? So, uh, so it's like, yo, like the Confederacy lost. Like they were, they were, uh, they were rebels. They were infidels. They were on the wrong side of history. So if you're supposed to be pro America, then you are giving it up for people who lost. Like, I don't run around here like, you know, cheering losers. Like, yo, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just, like, it's bogging But it's also a bigger issue. I think that the idea of then he's going to have seven monuments, I thought, well, that was, that was pretty creative. I mean, some people were saying, no, we need to tear it down. But for right now, and also it opens up the conversation. But I have to tell you that I have done a lot of work with different clients in South Carolina. I've met really? some... 
completely cool people some really awesome folk all right well you know what i will take your word for it if they are cool people down there i'll yeah i mean that's the thing you california elitist (laughs) you're from from missouri but you're not really from missouri because you don't become a bay area intellectual (laughs) oh my oh wow down people who live in the south i swear uh, you you know pam uh if uh, if i'm taking offense to that then i know you are taking offense to that come on like just, there's nothing cool. I mean, I mean, name. All right, I want you to name for every two things that you name is dope about, about South Carolina. I'll name thirty that's dope about California. Get, come on, give me one. And it ain't the weather. Well, wait. I mean, I, I, there's been a lot of civil rights marches there. I mean, I had I met some great people. I had some great food. And I did a lot of work in diversity. I mean, okay. I had companies right. call me. There's some really good. I have some really good friends down there. So, but hey, once you're in a California elitist, it's hard to you know it's hard to break out of it. It becomes you kind of get well. You know, I, I mean, look, like uh, growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, like I always wanted to come to California because I mean, I, I seen the weather, I seen the beaches, I seen the women, and I was like, yo, this is where I have to be. And so, it's still, I mean, California and like the Bay Area is super expensive, is sometimes a little corny, but it's still an amazing place like i'll you know i'll die in in, in california I'm, I'm not i'm just california is magical it's, i love it and i and and there's some very strong there's some very strong anti-racist movements there i mean people think that south carolina or you know it's like just all a bunch of white people and this will i mean the, the scl what was the southern christian leadership conference the um, I mean Morris Dees is down there. There's a lot of really Morris good- Dees is a really good man. Like you know, like okay. you know, uh, you know, like Morris Dees. He's so all right, cool. One uh, one great thing about, uh, about South Carolina, Morris Dees. All right, you know, I I'll give you that. Now, is he in South Carolina? Uh, I believe I believe so. Oh okay, all right. So yeah, it's South Carolina white monuments. All right, let's. Here's two other things that have happened. Three things that have happened, maybe four things that have happened. Uh, the mall in Alabama where there was a shooting. Did you read about that? Uh, no. Uh, wow. There was another shooting. What? Uh, yeah. And water's and, wet. What? <laughs> Just in, in Alabama at a mall. Was this recently? Yeah, over the weekend. It wasn't Damn. a mass shooting. It was one ki- one kid killed another. One kid shot another kid. I can't remember if he was killed. But the person that was killed, right. the young black man that was killed, they said, we got the shooter. Turns out, no, he was not the shooter. This is a guy. He was in the army. He was not the oh, shooter. Oh, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, I heard about that. Um, and at first yeah. they tried to say, oh, but he must have been involved. No, he wasn't. See, like in America, look. I wrote a piece uh, a couple years ago. It's, I think it was called "On Staying Alive While Black," and and people thought that I was that I was joking when I when I said this, but I was like, you know, it's getting to the point where black people, black men specifically, should not really plan for retirement, should not really be thinking about vacation, should not think that far into the future because every time you step out of the door, you know, every time you know you leave your home, it's a possibility you may not come back. And so things like this, I'm, I'm, I mean, these things happen on a regular on a regular basis. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, Leron, let's grab guns. But I don't think gun rights, I don't think gun control is the problem. I 
I think you know us having guns. I mean, had that. I mean, I mean that has not solved the issue. Like I, it's funny. Like I, uh, I saw a uh, great uh, tweet uh, that I that I'm going to actually uh, re, re, read off. It Tamir Rice held a toy gun in open carry state. Police executed him. That's Jamil right. Robertson. I'm sorry, Jamil Robertson stopped a mass shooter while on duty. Police executed him. Emantic Bradford was was stopping a shooter in an open carry state. Police executing him. The good guy with the gun myth is is a racist. Orlando lie. Castile, uh, who told the cops he had a gun. Philando Castile, Fla- uh, yeah. Uh, but which which by the way he was in uh, believe he was in the north. He was in Minnesota, right? But I believe that's an open carry state. He uh, he got killed. So it's it's not about where. It's not about carrying a gun. It's just about if you're black, you. You just you just don't have those rights. And so, you know, when I heard about, you know, I haven't dug that deep in into the story, Summer, but when I but when I heard about it, I said, well, I mean, you know, that's just that's just what happens. I, I mean, you I mean, you just you have to be ready to die. I mean, that sounds very grim, but but it is 100 percent real. Well, another thing that happened over the weekend is that or last week. A white guy was listening to his neighbor talk on the phone, but he said he didn't know he was on the phone. And the black guy is quoting the Jay-Z song, I've Got 99 Problems and a Bitch Ain't One. And the white guy decided that this was a domestic abuse case that this white guy must that the black guy must be abusing his spouse and calls the police. And it turned out all this guy was doing was quoting a song. And this white guy overhears him and assumes I don't know how he got from A to, to Jay-Z to domestic abuse, but he called the police on him. OK, so, so the police came. I mean, in this case, the police said, oh, come on now, you know. So the guy. All right. So let me get this straight. He was in his house. Yeah. Right. He's listening to the black album. It's a phenomenal <laughs> album. And this other guy, this other fellow, he's, he's he's no, no, he wasn't listening to music. He was just on the phone talking. He's just he's he's just so like I do this with, I do this with my little brother. He's my best friend in the world. I do this all the time with uh, with, uh, with Brent. We will just go back and forth. Quote, quote lyrics. So the other guy, he's he's ear hustling. Which is just slang yeah. for just, you know, like listening to like other people's conversations. Burglarizing the conversation. Exactly. And so he calls the police. I mean, look, you know, this is what this is life. This is life while black. This is what it means to, to be black. To, uh, be, because what because what this is, Sim, is, is actually a, a deeper issue. You are always policed. Like, not only are you always policed, but there is a a desire for control. So... You know, at this point, I, I mean, the only good that can come out of these uh, out of these e- examples is, is that this is further proof that this is a systemic issue because it's not because when they happen in these mass numbers, it's no longer an individual choice, right? It's systemic. It's okay. There is a culture of this of. Of, of this happening now some people will, will deny it say these are isolated incidents but <laughs> but, but when, when you have a hundred isolated incidents I'm just using an arbitrary number then that means that it's not an, an isolated incident anymore that that means that you know it's a hundred percent real well it's like remember when you were a kid 
and they would connect the dots. Right. And have, and then you'd have like a a picture. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of dots. It's a lot of lot of dots. I mean, there's a lot of dots. And let's talk. Let's talk about that. Like being a black man and being endangered. Right. So, what are the times do you feel like most in danger? Um, I mean, besides, like every day, but sure, I mean, you right. know, like <laughs> you know, like situations. Gosh, you know that. Uh, gosh, that's 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 a really interesting question. Um, what are is like the times that I feel the most in danger? Uh, probably driving. Yeah. You know, because I mean, like, you know, the the Gestapo, a.k.a. the police can, uh, could just stop me and just, you know, injure me. Uh, I would say if I am in what I would like to call a, a bro bar. Right. Like if I'm one of the own, if I'm one of the few black folks in a in a bar where it's just like a lot of testosterone, a lot of drinks are, are being consumed. Like uh, if it's a Saturday night in the marina. Like, yeah, like I may not come back home. I mean, because, you know, uh, I I joke about this, but these situations happen where, you know, white guys can consume liquor. They start they start to get angry and they just, you know, find a first black person and they just beat the crap out of them. Um, you, you, you know, uh, when it's funny because, uh, you know, again, going going back to I didn't feel any danger while I was in Florence, but like. There was some points when I when I went to Nashville and I was like, man, I mean, Nashville is, is an incredible city. Right. I mean, like their down their downtown summit is unreal as far as bars. Like I've never seen anything quite. It's it's, it's a lot of music. It's a lot of music. It's crazier than Vegas. But again, you know, with alcohol comes testosterone. And it's, and when you're in a in an environment where. It the it's like the overwhelmingly majority yeah. is white, you know that you know that can get kind of scary. It's one of those things now where like I've really had to like watch watch myself, right? I mean, you know where you know where I had to say, okay, you know, let me let me, let me be a bit more careful here. Like, you know, let me really pick and choose the places that I that that I that I go to because when I was in Kansas City, you know, when I was a bit more naive and. You know, I would go to, you know, I would just go anywhere. I mean, I, I knew there were some places that, you know, okay, maybe, you know, you shouldn't frequent, but I would just go almost anywhere. And looking back on that, I'm like, man, like I, I put myself into some really hairy situations, you know, um, also, um, you know, it's one of the other things that I, f- I feel danger from is like, um, when I, so I'm a, so I'm, I'm gonna keep it all the way live here. Um, when I am having a meeting with, with a woman, particularly a white woman, I won't be in that meeting alone. There, there has to be a witness there. And, you know, this is just because of the fact of the, the history of, you know, false accusations, you know, of rape or, or of sexual assault or attack. And this is not only just for, you know, black men. I mean, I think this is just for men, period. I think that uh, people got mad at Mike Pence, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Vice President Pence, when when he said, I will not have dinner with a woman alone. And I I thought that was some of the realest shit I ever heard, because that's real. That that's like, look, I don't want this to be any kind of improprietary. I'm married. I'm an I'm an elected official. I can't have that happen. So but just strictly like for me, like, you know, we won't be in a room alone together like i'm i'm i mean you know all i mean sima i know you you know 
we're good peoples, but just, I, you know, I try not to let that happen. I'm, I'm sorry, man. I mean, it's like, you, you, you know, I, I think that, I think that black men should really, uh, should really take heed to that. And, uh, and I think that men and men in general, man, like, you know, times have changed and we need to be more cognizant of that. You, you know, I look, I don't blame women when they're walking to their car and they got their keys in a, in her hand like a weapon yeah. because I mean you're like who are they afraid of I, got, I got my keys in between each finger see so I, I, you know Sim was ready to strike you know yeah. <laughs> I mean, and when I was going out when I was going from New York, I have to confess I used to carry a lock in a sock that that's real because it's because like the danger is real so I don't so I don't blame you know when like my mom would always say you know like when she would go to her car she would check the back seat, right? Always. And I'm and and it's like I was I was like wow. Matter, Always. M- matter of fact, you know what? I'll uh, I'll tell you this tell you this story. A former friend of mine, she's a uh, she's a college professor, and you know she's talking to her class and and they're talking about what they're gonna do uh, for the for the weekend, and she's telling this class like, well, you know, I think I'm gonna go rock climbing, and so one of her female students asked her, well, what are you going to carry to protect yourself? And the men in the class, they were like, they were dumbfounded. They were like, yo, like, what he's humble? What do you need to, uh, what do you need to protect yourself from what? And my former friend said from, uh, from you. So that's, so that's why I, I, I think I, as a black man, like I, I empathize with that because it's like, you know, when I, you know, when I go to these places, like, you know, my spidey senses are just, I mean, I'm just, yeah. I'm just at alert. Like I'm looking for the entrance. I'm uh, you know, I'm just sort of like filling out like the crowd, like, you know, um, I went to, um, got a chance to go to Ireland for my birthday, you know, for my 40th, you know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little old. So I got a chance to go to Ireland for my 40th and it was incredible. Like I always wanted to go to Dublin because that's where, uh, one of my heroes, James Joyce is from. And so, uh, Michelle and I, we took a bus to, you know, one of those tourist buses and we got off at the uh, Guinness factory. And, you know, the Guinness factory is, is, is actually in kind of a rough neighborhood. So, you know, why, you know, while we were, you know, uh, on this bus, you know, some kids from the project started like throwing stuff at the, at the bus. So like the, the bus would not stop. And so, you know, I, I just like, whenever I go to a city sim, I'm like, get me out of the tourist area. I want to see the, I want to see the, yeah. uh, the real Dublin. Right. So we got a chance to go to this neighborhood called the liberties and you know, the liberties, you know, it's, it's, it's a real, like, you know, like, you know, she's playing, you know, shit is real there. So we go into this bar. I, I never forget this. We go into this, we go into this bar and I'm looking at everybody, you know, I'm checking their, I'm checking their temperature. You know, it's just, you know, some real good folk, you know, drinking, having a good, you know, having a good time. Like it's a, like it's a real neighborhood bar. Right. And so, you know, I, I look at people's tattoos. I look at the, I look at the demeanor on their faces and, you know, it was all love. And you could tell that this is an area that is going through gentrification because I'm just sitting here talking, talking to the bartender. I'm listening to the conversation that the locals are having. And all of a sudden, this group of Asian people come in that just you can tell they're not from the area. And they're like, do you have Wi-Fi? And I'm like, gentrification 
is everywhere. But and so when I walk out of the area, so when I walk out of the bar, I see people jogging and people with uh, baby strollers. That's how you know gentrification is just everywhere. But yeah, you know, it's just you just have to just be careful where you're where you're going. But I would go back to the liberties in a heartbeat because it it felt like home. Well. I- you know, I'm glad that I'm glad you had a good time. I've never been to Ireland, but I'd like to go to Ireland. So if anybody's listening, you want to invite Incredible. me, you know, I'm, I'm happy to call. Please go. take Sema. <laughs> you know, yeah, listen, the me. nicest people in the entire world. Like, just, I mean, just incredibly nice folk. Just, you know, beautiful redheaded women. Just like, you know, the, I mean, it's just. But what I want to ask about, though, is did you ever read the book uh, Whistling Vivaldi? Uh, I've heard of it. No, I have not, though. Okay. It's by Claude Steele. Claude Steele. I've heard the name before. And what he talks about is being a black man in Washington, Mm D.C., knowing that white people, particularly white women, might be afraid of him at night. And so what he would start doing would be to start whistling classical music. Right. I heard about that. that. People wouldn't think that you think, oh, somebody whistling classical music can't be dangerous that's uh that's crazy right i mean like so, like you uh, you have to literally like uh sort of uh demasculate yourself to i mean wow that's so my, crazy so my question is looking at and i think this is true in many incorporations and businesses of what's considered normal behavior but it really doesn't have anything to do with how the work is done of a certain kind of white norm right and so that means what? That you have to temper your conversation? Yes. So I was uh, just wondering how you've been impacted by that. Because you're black and you're really tall, too. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, know, tall, somewhat broad shoulder. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you, you, man, wow, that is such a, great, such a great question. I'm really enjoying this, this conversation. Um, so I remember there was a past couple of days, uh, and, and, and I guess this kind of ties in, uh, my man Forrest Palmer, Facebook, really good dude just crazy incredibly outspoken fellow and he put something on facebook about how he always runs into issues with with white with white security guards and someone had comment you know you know there you know there was a pretty good thread about it and someone had comment is like you know it's funny black security guards all they have to be is just tall and male and 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 they'll be intimidating there's there's nothing else that they need to do right and so when i am in the workplace um so i have an essay coming out next 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 week it's about code it's about code switching and just oh you got to be on my show and talk about that uh, i would definitely like just basically like i just don't do it any anymore um i think that uh you as a black male, you have to know, I mean, like you, you have to understand that you are going to come off as aggressive no matter what. I mean, it's just, you're like, you know, you can be having a disagreement and it's like, Oh my God, he's super angry. Like if you don't come into the office smiling, Oh my, Oh my God, he's about to catch wreck. He's about to shoot this whole thing up. I mean, it's like just your, just your presence is intimidate is intimidating. Like, you know, like, like, you know, you have to, you know, you have to cheese, you know, AK smile, you know, you have to be, you have to have a super positive, um, out, uh, outlook. I mean, and especially the, uh, the fact that I am a, 
dark complected black black male. So the fact that I have short hair, you know, when I cut my hair bald, I mean, I'm just, you know, just super, you know, uh, masculine, like just uber aggressive person. So, um, you know, there have been, there's a, there, there's a woman, uh, she was on this, she's on this podcast called the context of a white supremacy. I, I, I highly recommend it. And she was talking about how as a black woman, how she talks to black men about how they temper down their masculinity. And she was like, you know, it's a sad world that we live in that these guys feel that they have to do that. Me, I don't do that. You know, people are, are going to deem me one way or the other. So I'm just, I'm not going to go that, I'm not going to go that route. You know, you dig. So, um, but yeah, no, like that's a hundred percent real Simma. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the time and I have so enjoyed talking to you, Leron. Oh, um, hey, Simma, uh, before we bounce, can we talk about, um, Takashi? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Idiot? I thought you should have even five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but Hey, no, no, I want to, no. I am fascinated by what's going on. So you're going to have to, I guess you're going to stay a little bit longer than yeah. five minutes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you're thinking. Uh, man, gosh. I am fascinated by what's going on. I can't help it. You know, um, growing up, like, um, you know, being a gangster, I mean, you know, you know, we, you know, we grew up around, uh, around gang members. It, it wasn't something that was like promoted positive, positively, you know, because I mean, yeah. you know, gangsters, you know, were scary dudes, right? Like they were like, Oh snaps. Hey, yo, like, you know, you know, um, he's a gangster. Yo, like, you know, um, he, uh, he may, you know, snap on us, you know, um, he shoots up stuff and it's like, this uh the fact that this young man wants to be affiliated with negativity so bad and just the fact that now he is um he has been arrested by the federal government for those who don't know man like the feds like when well they, first of all just do a little bit of background on Takashi. Uh, yeah so i mean he's an incredibly whack mc from new york i believe he's from brooklyn he's associated himself with a blood set out of uh out of new york and so the feds got him on like uh him and his crew on on a rico indictment which is racketeering influenced corrupt uh corrupt corrupted corruption or organization which is just pretty much like you know you're kind of screwed right i mean like the feds, when the federal government comes to get you, and this is one thing that I've learned is that they have a um, a, a um, conviction rate of uh, about ninety to ninety five percent. And he's yeah, and also he's twenty two. He's a he's a he's a twenty two year old uh, year old man. So with rainbow hair, with rainbow hair, and rainbow uh, teeth, rainbow teeth. I'm, I mean, he's I mean, like he's gonna have a hard time because because you know he's you know he's a frail guy. I've never, yeah. I've never been to prison. I've, I've been in jail and I've, and I've been to county jail and I've seen the pecking order, right? So, um, so I mean, like, that's real. Like, from what I've been told, he's been threatened and or beat up. Now he's moved to a different environment where, yeah. where he's in what they call a sensitive knees yard, which is just pretty much where they, where they put snitches, rats, and pedophiles. And it was something that, um, OG Trady uh, from from Eastside LBC said he said once you go to that yard you can't come back to uh, to general population right. because they're gonna beat you so um, I'm putting my money on him snitching like look he's it's a minimum twenty five year sentence right so 
I don't know anybody who's going to do time for somebody for that long. I'm sorry, 25, uh, tw- tw- 25 years, life. 25 to light. Exactly. So what that means pretty much is, uh, is, is when he serves his, his 25, uh, mind you, I don't know if he may get some, I mean, and mind you, he has not been convicted yet, but I don't know if he's going to get some type of, I'm sorry, some type of, you know, uh, get released in seven, whatever, whatever. But let's say he doesn't, right? Yeah. So he does the 25 to like, you know, goes to the parole board at 25 years. They can then determine, all right, well, yes, you have served your 25 years, but we still deem you as, as a threat to, to society. So you're going to have to serve another two years. That's why they call it the 25 to life. So it's not a guarantee he's going to spend. It's, it's not a natural life sentence, but it's a really hard sentence. And so, and with the feds, you got to, I think you got to serve at least 85% of your time. So, you, you know, his life is over. I think this is a cautionary tale for young kids to not want to embrace that kind of lifestyle because, you know, when I've spoken with people who have been locked up, Sima, there's, you know, there's a lot of folks who don't want to be gangsters, who don't want to be hard. And so for someone like him to embrace that and to, you know, just have like all this security running or, you know, running and running around with him. I mean, who wants to live that kind of life? So now, so, so, so now you're in a situation where, you know, you have to either, you know, fight the case. Mind you, the federal government has unlimited resources. Like, his money will dry up. His money will run out. The federal government, their money will not run out. So sooner or later, someone's someone's going to um, going to cut a deal. And it's just there's there are no winners in this situation, right? I mean, you know, this young man is uh, potentially going to lose his life and prison. I, I, again, you know, I've, I've been to jail. That is one of the worst experiences in my entire life, and I can imagine prison is worse. So. You know, well, uh, what I think is sad too. Um, you know, we, we could have we'll have another we'll have another conversation about this because I know you said you got to go, but that he was warned that he felt that this is what he needed to do. I right. mean, he was already making millions of dollars, right. making all kinds making of money, all kinds of money, doing whatever he wanted. I mean, he was getting pass free passes for all kinds of stuff that he'd done in the past. Yep. And he'd been warned. Fat Joe warned him. Uh, he was on an interview with Charlemagne. Eber, I mean, even right. one all these people that said, hey, man, you know, you got to tone it down. If you want to really make it to the big leagues, you got. But his thing was, man, nobody could touch me. I could do whatever I want. Right. Yeah. Having good people around you is very underrated. Right. <clears throat> so you have to have people who are going to be honest with you and who are going to keep you humble. You know, uh, you you can't have people that are going to okay every move that that you make because those are not your real friends. And so, you know, we see this playing out in, in real life. Like honestly, um, Sima, I, I I didn't think that he would get arrested this fast. I had a feeling he was either going to be thrown in jail or he was going to get hemmed up real bad, maybe killed, whatever. But you know, I don't wish this on any on on mm-hmm. anybody. Why is that stupid? Yeah, right. He's Be- smart, but he's acting a fool. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, I don't like him. I, I don't respect him. But, you know, he is a father. 
And, you know, unfortunately, too many young young boys grow up without fathers. And Wait, he's got a kid. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, he has a kid. And so he's a oh, kid. Lord. He's a kid having a having a kid. Yeah, and he's so, really a kid. And so it's like at the end of the day, uh, you, you just have to just look at it and say, well, I mean, you know, um, someone said play stupid games. You get stupid prizes. Yeah. That's what, I mean, that, really? That's just what it is. Well, Laron. I yes, am going to uh, close and say TBC to be continued because I really want you on the show again. I really want to talk again. about code switching, too. So any last words that you would like to say? I uh, just really enjoy being on this platform. Um, hello. <laughs> Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best pro 